is chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul writes to this many churches, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, or in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So our title is, I am crucified with Christ. Last Sunday, we noted that this statement, this phrase means to be united to Christ. And to be united means to be dead to the law. Paul says, I through the law am dead to the law so that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Next, we look at the experience of union with Christ, as Paul says, is faith in Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ is alive in me. And the life that I'm now living, I live by faith of the Son of God. So to be crucified with Christ, to be dead to the law, to be alive to God, is to be living by faith in Christ. Our experience of union is communion with Jesus Christ. Now in this passage, we see somewhat of a definition of faith. Anytime you go to a passage and see the word faith or believe, contextually, uh, nuances begin to emerge that give us a definition that's all rooted in a basic definition of a conviction, a belief in something true, which you'll find the Greek word to mean, pistis is the, the word, or a, a trust in the reliability, the strength, or the power of something. And so when we look here in this one passage, what begins to emerge based on that basic definition is faith is a commitment of the heart in relation to God, to entrust one's life and surrender all to Christ that then results in a new way of living. Now that's not a definition reserved for apostles. That is the definition of Christianity, what it means to walk by faith or walk by the Spirit with Jesus Christ. So let's, let's look at that uh, in this one verse and look at those different facets of what we'll see in the passage itself. First, faith is a commitment of the heart in relation to God. So what does Paul say? I live, that's a 24-7 commitment. I live, commitment. By faith, that's a position of the heart. Faith is something in the inner man that works itself out to the outer man. I live by faith, in the Son of God, of the Son of God, relationship. So faith is a heart commitment to live relationally to God by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now the Galatian churches are moving away from that. They are setting aside the grace of God, which means based on that definition, they're setting aside faith for works, which means they're moving away relationally from Christ to whom they were called in communion with Christ. So that's what's at stake in this letter. And Paul uses this passage, beginning also in chapter 3, as a transition from his apostolic authority to unpacking and unfolding for us this relationship of faith 
and what it means to be justified in chapters 3 and 4. And he uses the, the Galatians' own experience to show them the foolishness, Paul's word in chapter 3, 1, of their thinking and trying to contribute something to their justifying righteousness or something to their sanctifying righteousness. Because both are predicated on faith. So let's consider that for a minute. A heart commitment in relation to God. First, by heart, we know we mean the inner man. The whole of the inner man. The thoughts, the affections, the will, the mind. It's a heart commitment. It's how God calls us into relationship to Himself by this heart commitment called faith. Now, gloriously, we have been forgiven. But the reality of the gospel is that we've been forgiven to relate to God. Sometimes as Christians we think forgiveness means that it only secures for me a place in paradise. Gloriously it does. But the aim of Christ and His death for which the Galatians were frustrating or nullifying is relationship with Christ at the heart level, that, that's a commitment. Now, we, we saw that in Galatians 1, 4, and 6. Christ gave Himself for our sins. There's forgiveness. Galatians 1, 6. I marvel that you're so soon removed from Him, because that's what forgiveness does. It brings you to Him. So I am marveling that you're so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Because the aim of the gospel is to forgive you so that by faith you can come to God and relate to Him moment by moment, day by day. You can see these two facets in Galatians 2.20 coming together, and I mean union that gives rise to communion in Ephesians 3.16. When Paul prays for the church where he says, I'm praying that you would be, by the, by the riches of God's glory, He would grant unto you to be strengthened with all might by His Spirit in the inner man. So that's the, the heart. And so to be strengthened by the Spirit is our union with Christ. Because Romans 8 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the Spirit of Christ in you is our union with Christ. Paul is praying that we as a church, the Galatian church, or the Ephesian church, and us also, would be strengthened by this inner presence of the Spirit. How would this strength happen for you? That Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Now what Paul doesn't mean is that Christ, and our union with Him, it, it fluctuates. That Sometimes He's out of us, sometimes He's dwelling, sometimes He's not there. Union with Christ is indissoluble, which means it's indestructible. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. It cannot be severed. If it can be, you die eternally. So Paul doesn't mean uh, Jesus goes away, He comes back, the Spirit leaves you and He comes back. What does He mean? He means our union with Christ, our abiding union, that's eternal, from eternity past to eternity future. In the thoughts and minds of God when Christ was hanging on the Christ, uh, cross and to our actual possession of Christ at the new birth. 
our experience of union is in communion or faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is praying that what's in us eternally would be experienced in living a life of faith. A life of faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. What is our communion experience with Christ who is united with us? So union is the foundation of communion. It's not the other way around. We get in all kinds of trouble and loss of assurance if we try to say communion is the root of union. Union, Christ dwelling, gives rise to a communion by faith, relationship with Him that works itself out in love. Our first experience of faith is love of God that then produces love horizontally. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's not the only one, but that is the first fruit. So this heart commitment is an inner experience of the heart, of the indwelling Christ, which is eternal, but that we experience this communion, this relationship, which just means how two people are connected to each other, how they regard each other. And we know the relationships we enjoy the best, we want there to be what? Love. Do we not? So it's it's the hard experience of faith to relate to Christ because He loved you and gave Himself for you. But it's a commitment of the heart. What does commitment mean? Paul says, I'm living by faith, but I'm living that way. It's not a part-time occupation for Paul. It's a way of life. The word commitment means to be dedicated or devoted. means to give up, give over, give all. To some activity, some purpose, or some person. We know what that looks like. We see the dedication of a soldier that gives life and won't quit, won't leave his post for love of freedom and country. Uriah the Hittite wouldn't go into his own house because the men were on the battlefield. Although David was trying to coerce him, he said, I won't do it. That's dedication, that's commitment. We see it in the employee that won't hardly take a day off. He loves to be successful. He loves hard work. He wants to see the company advance. You have to say, you need to take a day off. Devotion, dedication. We know what devotion looks like when someone gives up like a mother that gives all to her family, tirelessly, exhausted for love of family. We know, we see every day through media, the athlete who loves the championship gives him or herself over to training. That's dedication, that's devotion. But what about Christ? Do you live by faith of the Son of God? Or is He just a part-time kind of Activity. Are you dedicated, notwithstanding our weaknesses, our failures? Now, all those examples we just gave, there's failure in there, isn't there? 
But notwithstanding failure, there is a resolve and a commitment that's unstoppable. It's unflinching. You can't stop it. How dedicated are you to the Word of God, to prayer, and to the church of God, and to serving God? Now, now to be dedicated to Christ, don't misunderstand, will work itself out in a dedication horizontally in many ways. But the priority, the priority that's unstoppable, that's not in question, we don't even have to decide. There is no thinking here as to what we will do and how we will act in regard to God's Word. Yes, we may fail. Yes, we may lose our bearings. But there's no question but what? We live by faith of the Son of God. It's a 24-7 commitment. Perhaps God today is calling you back to such a commitment. Calling you back to make Him the priority. The one that loved you, the one that gave Himself for you to be the priority for which you dedicate yourself to a life of grace through faith for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now what does this heart commitment called faith in relation to Jesus start to look like? Well, it looks like a new way of living. Paul would say, the life that I now live by faith, which presupposes what? I used to live differently, but now there's been a transformation. Paul used to live according to the independent I, the old ego. You know, we recently celebrated independence, Glorious thing for our country. As a Christian, you never, ever celebrate spiritual independence. Ever. But the ego wants to do that. Paul had an ego that was all about independent, self-willed, self-determined, self-dedication for the advancement of self. Now he says, now, after having been united to Christ by faith... Now, I'm living a new way. That's Christianity 101. That's not apostolic Christianity. That's the life God demands for those who have Christ living in them, for those who have the grace of God in Christ that they've been called into. So what does that mean to live now in a way that's different then? Paul will... Again, going back to Romans, Paul will speak of this new life in Christ, if you'd like to turn there, Romans chapter 6, where again, the Roman letter is a much more full expansion of some of the same ideas that you see in summary in the book of Galatians concerning justification and sanctification, how God declares us right, and how we then grow in holiness, is what the two words are referring to. So Paul would say concerning this new life in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, so that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk, how? In newness of life. In a nowness kind of way, as Paul says. Now versus then. Now, Paul is using baptism as a shadow to depict a reality, right? You have to remember in the New Testament, it wasn't that someone was baptized after being converted two years ago 
pretty much happened all in the same kind of day. You know, he opened Lydia's heart. Paul was preaching. She's effectually called. She goes into the water. Paul says, let me tell you what that shadow we just did is pointing to as a reality. I mean, they happened right one after the other. There was no delay. They went into the water. The shadow is pointing to the reality of union, isn't it? See, When Christ died, you died with Him. When He was buried, you were buried with Him. When He was raised, you were raised with Him in the thoughts and in the purpose of God. Then God effectually called you by His grace and brought you into possession of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Then you went into the water and gave a drama, a depiction, a shadow of what just happened to you by grace. You died, you went under the water and were buried under the water. And you rose up like a resurrection. To do what? Walk in a new now way. That is different than the way you used to walk. Now, there's some things the same about it. You know, you still eat the same kind of food. You live in the same house, you drive the same car. There's some things that don't change, but there's something that radically changes. And Paul says now, he's referring to the fact that we live by a new glory. So that like as Christ was raised by the glory of God the Father, even so we, which means what? If He was raised by the glory of God, guess what? You were raised by the glory of God the Father because you're united to Him. You were raised by His glory, for His glory, to His glory. You live by a new glory because the old glory is passed away. The old glory of Mr. Independence where you lived your life not by faith in another but by faith basically in yourself. You charted your own course. You lived according to your own way and now after being in possession of the reality of being united to Christ and experiencing that by faith you live for a new glory. You're dedicated to a new glory. You're given over to a new glory that's not your own. You share in that glory, but it's the glory of the risen Savior that loved you and gave Himself for you. Paul would say it's so pervasive in your life that in 1 Corinthians 10 he would say, whether therefore you eat or you drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is pervasive That's commitment. That's devotion. That is 24-7. How do you do that to the glory of God? And my children would say to you, yeah, my dad thinks it means sit up, eat with your mouth closed, and use good manners. Now, it it, it could mean that if it's loving others and, you you know, you're eating in a way that's uh, not so pleasing. I do that sometimes myself. So. But the heart of what Paul is saying is that in the context of 1 Corinthians 10, you know, if your brother's conscience is weak, then give up the muscle from a cow and fermented grapes for the good of your brother. In other words, to live by new glory is to live by new gain. Give up the stake. And the glass of wine, just give it up. Because whatever you eat and drink is to be done for the glory of God. And that means God is greater gain than muscle from a cow and fermented grapes. Is He not? 
Well, of course he is. And that's the second point Paul makes in Romans 6 and verse 6. We live new, a new glory. We live with a new gain. There has been a game changer, not a game changer. You know what a game changer is? It's when some event, something has happened that has so shifted the manner in which you're thinking or living. That's a game changer. Well, in verse 6, Paul says there's been a game changer. Look at verse 6 of Romans 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, there's our union, so that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth, now, in newness of life, we should not serve the master called sin. Now, what does it mean, mean that the body of sin is destroyed? The word means to deprive of its power. Sin used to be, if you're a believer, used to be the master you obeyed. And according to verse 12, you obeyed it in the lust thereof. Right? So if sin is a falling short of God's glory, to serve sin means whatever lesser glories we could find, anything and everything but God, we expected the lesser glories to deliver a gain to us that we expected to be fulfilling and pleasurable and satisfying. And it was just creation glory. Now... By being crucified with Christ, this newness of life, which is a new glory, is now a new gain. Which means the power to resist the master called sin is the power of superiority. And let let Paul speak here, Galatians 3.6. I mean, he's using the first person, Galatians 2. I am crucified with Christ. I live by faith now of the Son of God. So he would say, what things were gained to me, Paul had a game changer. Something drastically changed the way he lived. Then, what was his gain? All that's listed in Galatians 3, in the first five verses. That was his gain. Something changed, an event, a significant thing, person called Christ. And now what was gained to him... Now he counts loss, he counts all things loss for the supremacy or the excellency of Christ Jesus the Lord. What has deprived Paul's master called sin that he used to obey in the desires thereof? The supremacy of the excellency of Christ Jesus the Lord. And knowing him, Paul would say. To be dedicated to live now, in a new way, is to be dedicated to a new glory and a new gain. Are you dedicated? Are you devoted to the glory of God for which the Holy Spirit has unveiled to you by His grace? He has showed it to you. Not that we would continue to serve the Master called sin and go after all lesser glories, It's been revealed to us that we may see God as He is in Christ, which is what Paul says, excellence, supremacy, superiority. We know those word means far far greater than lesser things. And it's on that basis 
that Paul says, now I'm living different. Now I'm living different. And of course, it's also a new God. All this means a new God. Verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves, Romans 6, 11, to be dead indeed unto sin, because you are. You need to think that way every day when you wake up. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to the old way. I'm dead to the master called sin. He's not destroyed. Dominion has been lost. He's been deprived of dominion and absolute sway and power. I'm dead indeed into sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm alive to a new God, the only God, and all the other false gods I'm now dead to. All the gods that we used to serve. Serving divers' lust and pleasures, Paul would say in Titus 3.3. All the gods that we serve, because we thought those gods would deliver what we wanted. And beloved, aren't they terrible gods? Aren't they just terrible to serve? They never give you what they promise. They can't. They're false. And it leaves us empty again and again. And we plug in another God and we plug in another God and it leaves us empty. And the flesh, rather than turning to the mercy of God, keeps turning to the life of independence as if you will find the God that will bring you fulfillment. Well, you never will. So Paul says, now I'm alive to God. Now I have a new glory. Now I have a new gain. Now I have a new God who's the true and living God by grace, which means now I'm living. I am committed to a life of faith, which is a heart commitment relationally to Jesus Christ, which takes priority over every lesser glory, lesser glory that God created for His glory. Now, if this new life then is making its way in progress in your life, it will then work itself out in a commitment to surrender all to Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, Nevertheless, not I, but Christ. I'm alive, he says. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. What do you mean, Paul? Paul is alive. There has been a death that occurred of the old man. He's been crucified, but Paul is alive. Yet he's saying, it's not me doing the living. In other words, I'm surrendering daily myself, my I, to Christ. I'm giving way. I'm giving up. I'm giving over. I'm giving all to a complete and total surrender to Jesus Christ. That Jesus says, I've got to do it daily. Because you can't make a one-time surrender and it just sticks, can you? You know that. Well, I did that two years ago. Why is it not happening today? Well, because you, you have to surrender every day, Jesus says. Fanny Crosby wrote the song, Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. That's surrender. Is your will being lost in the divine will? That's not apostolic Christianity. It's what God demands from each of us. Because we know His will is superior than what I can decide, what I can 
think, what I can want, right? Is your will progressively being lost in the will of the one who loves you, redeemed you, rescued you, brought him to himself for that very reason? To no longer live the eye of independence who decides and does everything for himself. That's the old way Paul lived. To the eye that lives, that surrenders all to Jesus Christ. The Bible declares that. You remember God says in Isaiah 55 verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And then the righteous man his thoughts. Stop thinking. Stop living your way. Well, what do I do? For my ways and my thoughts are higher than your ways, saith the Lord. We take on God's ways. We start thinking after God. We start willing what God wills. How? Because Christ lives in us. Isn't that what Paul says? Yet not I, but Christ is living in me. So the life I'm now living, it's by faith in the Son of God. He's there. You can't do this alone. They make that statement sometimes. Don't don't try this at home. Don't try this without Christ. He says you can do nothing without Him. Nothing. But with Him, all that God demands, all that grace requires, grace is delivering progressively as we walk by faith with Jesus Christ. If we know that to be predestinated, to be conformed to the image of Christ, we ask, what is at the heart of that image? Is it not that Christ lost His will in the divine will completely and totally? John 4, 34, My meat, my food is to do the will of Him that sent me. It's my very sustenance to do whatever He says, whatever He wills. I'm just lost in His will. John 5.30, I seek not mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. I'm not even seeking to do what I want to do or my own will. It's whatever the Father wills. That's what I'm about. John 8.38, 6.38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. The will of Christ is lost in the will of the Father. And it's not the kind of losing that he's like, mm, I, I, I got to do this, I got to keep doing everything the Father says. That's us at times, isn't it? He delighted, Psalm 40, in the will of the Father. He delighted. So if we're being conformed to Christ and He's dwelling in us by the Spirit and the Spirit is strengthening us in the inner man, what should be the upshot of that? Our wills should start progressively being lost in the will of Christ. Progressively. Lost. Is your will being progressively lost in the will of Christ? Which you may say, what is the will of Christ? That's a good question. What is the will of Christ? How does this happen more specifically? It means you make a commitment to die to yourself. See, if, if Paul says, not I, but I is still present in some degree called the flesh, Galatians 5, what's he going to do with that I? He's going to put it down. Every day he's going to try to put it down by grace. Galatians 5.24 And those that are Christ have crucified the affections with the lust. Notice two things here. It doesn't say God crucified the affections and lust. It says you did. 
They that are Christ have crucified. Active voice, aorist tense, meaning having begun at some time in the past, the past tense. But it says, those that are Christ, you have crucified the flesh. And if it started at some point in the past, what are the implications? It's still happening in the present. See, when God so decisively united you to Christ by faith, the result of that union is communion with Christ that starts to attack sin. The flesh that's been executed, now we are executing. We become executioners of our own flesh. And how does the flesh love to live? The lust of the flesh are against the lust of the Spirit. So how would that work out in your life? Well, one way is you go to Galatians 5 and you start to read the works of the flesh, which are manifest. Now what's manifested are the works of the flesh that are rooted in what? The lust of the flesh. You can't just go and say, well, I don't commit adultery. I don't fornicate. What are your lusts? It's a root desire that gives way then to works of the flesh because the flesh aims at an independent gratification that rejects the mercy of God and says, I will fill my empty tank with my own will, my own ideas, and my own pursuits, and nobody will do it for me. That's flesh. Love says, the Spirit will fill me as I walk with Him and be led of Him, Galatians 5. And the overflow of His fullness will be love to others. So you look at the works of the flesh and you identify words, desires, and actions that need to be killed. And maybe your wife tells you about those. Or maybe your husband tells you. You know what? Maybe not quite like that, but honey, whatever your word is. You know, I'm seeing things in you that's just out of sync with, with God's word. and I'm concerned because she is your help me or, or vice versa. It's identified and by walking with the Spirit, being led of the Spirit, you pray, you ask God, and then you commit to putting it to death. The problem so often in my life and probably with yours is that word commitment. That's a hard word, isn't it? Sometimes we have a sin problem and we may seek help and say, you know, I, I've got a problem with sin. I'd like help with this. We expect pastor, counselor, or brother and sister of Christ to tell us, you know what, i got the perfect thing. It's called the gospel pill. You take two of these and your anger, it's gone. Your lust, it'll be subdued. And your words that you keep barking out to everybody, gone. Because we live in a culture of medication. Just take two gospel pills. Beloved, it takes commitment a commitment, a devotion to kill the sin or it just stays because we think grace is a magic potion that flows through us. And I believe in grace. I love grace. So it's just going to kind of, I'm just going to stop saying that one day. And then 10 years later, I'm still saying that. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh because it has been crucified and they become executioners of all the works of the flesh that God shows us they're still there. The flesh is not completely annihilated, but he's impaled on a cross. And what happens is we let him get down. And we let him walk around and move about freely in our hearts and minds. When we need to keep him on the cross and keep driving the nails of grace back in, 
by looking at the sin that so easily besets us and asking God to help us and then committing ourselves to a surrender that works itself out in an all-out assault against sin because we readily admit it's still present with us. Now, how much are you committed to not living, as Paul says, not I, but Christ living in me? You're surrendered, you're surrendering to Christ, which means then you have to fight sin. Sin that we're so easily prone to. Sin that Jesus has died and forgiven you for. Sin that once we deal with and ask forgiveness and repent relationally, we keep coming back to Jesus Christ and experiencing the power of grace divine. Is your will being lost in the will of Christ? And if it's not, how do you ever think that's going to start? Just walk out of here and kind of float out and grace will just kind of make it happen. No, you've got to make a commitment just like you commit to activities, people, events, hobbies. Like that, make a commitment. Why would we do anything less? Paul said in, back in Romans 6, he says, Neither yield ye yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Yield is a word of surrender. Yield. Give it all over. But yield yourselves unto God and your members unto God as those being alive from the dead as instruments of righteousness to God. An instrument is a weapon or a tool. Like a tool for the garden or in a shop is totally under the control of the grip of the master. Yield yourselves to God as an instrument of righteousness and not to unrighteousness, Paul would say. That's what it means to live a life of faith. And how do we so yield? We've got to kill the unrighteous deeds. Like a subject would say to a king at your service. What does that mean? I'm I'm totally yielded. I'm totally yielded. Whatever your will is, I'm yielded. That's what grace helps us do through faith. Now remember, just to say contextually here, the Galatians are moving away from that. They're bringing back the independent eye and starting to live by adding something to Christ, for which Paul argues in Galatians 3, you just push the whole Christ out of the courtroom of justification. Because if you're going to live by one point of the law, you've got to keep it all, which is impossible. And so Paul's aim in Galatians 2.20, contextually, is to show what they're doing and how they're pushing away a life of faith in Christ, a relationship with Christ, by turning from faith and turning to their own ways and their own ideas. And then next, and lastly, It's a commitment to hear God's Word. And that's what Paul moves into as he goes to the next chapter, 3 verse 1. He would say, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? What are the implications of not trusting Jesus, not obeying the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth among you crucified. This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you're now being made perfect by the flesh? What's Paul saying? He's pointing to their experience of beginning the Christian race. And now what are they doing? They think they can finish it by the works of the law. 
See, it's, it's not so much the finish or the beginning as it is the finish, is it? I learned that recently once again. I took about a 40-year pause of playing golf. And some people encouraged me to play a few rounds in the last six months. I played a few rounds. I discovered once again it's not the drive. I tell you, I can drive right down the center of the fairway. And the people with me can hook a little bit, slice a little bit, be in the rough. And invariably, when you count the score, guess what? I'm a loser every single time because I chip, 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 putt, putt, putt. And the score just goes up. I say, don't even write it. They started well. What was the problem? They weren't finishing by faith. Beloved, nobody finishes without faith. You don't get to the finish line without faith. You know, if it was just about the drive, I could be under par every time. Just one shot, I'm finished with that hole. You did run well, Galatians 5, 7. Who did check you and hinder you that you did not obey the truth? They were running beautifully. The word hinders like checking a sail of a ship. You know, the way a ship charts the course of the crew is they get the nautical chart out and they, they chart the safe course and then they start to make it to their final destination. The course is the final destination. They were running so well because they were running by faith in Christ, Galatians 5, 6. For in Jesus Christ neither uncircumcision or circumcision availeth anything but faith which is producing love. You were running beautifully, kalos, because you were running by faith. You, you drove the ball so beautifully down the fire. It was right down the middle. And then somebody checked you. And you got off course. The ship veered. Why? Because you took your eyes off the nautical map. It's critical to stay the course of the map, the chart work. In Galatians 3.1, Paul says, who was evidently set forth, pro-grafe, to write before. It was used by painters to, to paint a beautiful portrait, a picture. Paul painted a beautiful portrait of Christ it wasn't a partial portrait. It wasn't painting by the numbers. Here's the outline. Fill in your own colors. It was a complete full picture of redemption. But where did he get it? It was not from the imagination of his thoughts as they accused him of. It was pra-grafe, before written. It was from Scripture. They started well because they were hearing the Word of God. Their eyes were on the nautical chart that revealed Christ, but jet skis ran in front of them. You know, I, they're kind of fun. This old ship of faith just creaking along, but the jet skis, I mean, that's stuff. And they turned course away from Christ. I may be talking to someone that was running well at one time. You say, well, I am here. So were the Galatians. They were all there. Nobody left. But they weren't running well because they had no heart commitment by faith in Jesus Christ relationally to entrust their life and themselves and surrender to Christ in a way that was transforming them or producing a new life of faith which works in love. Maybe you were running well. Something happened to check the course of the ship. Something got in the way and God is calling you this morning to get back on course. If the ship gets crushed in the rocks, does it ever make it to the destination? 
If the ship of faith goes under the water, tell me, does it ever make it to the destination? It does not. Stay the course. Because Christ is in you to sustain you, to love you, and to be your God. But we experience union with Christ in a communion that is a commitment of the heart to live relationally to God in Christ by faith and to entrust and surrender ourselves over and over to fight the flesh in such a way that we're being transformed by the Spirit. See, To walk in the Spirit, to be led of the Spirit, is to bear the fruit. That's transformation. That's what that is. Are you running well? If not, Christ your Savior that loved you and gave Himself for you is calling you back to get in the round of golf or pick your own illustration and to stay and finish the course. He's worthy, isn't He? He's gracious. He will not leave you. He will be with you. When that ship is struggling and the storm set into the ship and you see the jet skiers in the sun and they look like they're loving life and you're, you're having all this struggle, then you, you feel His strong arm grip you and say, stay in the boat with me. I know what I'm doing. I'll take you all the way to the end. Don't jump out of the ship and don't veer off course. Christian, don't quit. Live by faith of the Son of God who loves you and gave Himself for you. Let's pray.